Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, and in that, revealing ourselves to us as well. Thank you, dearest Lord, for giving us the grace of being able to know you, so that we can better love you, so we can more ardently serve you. We thank you that all of this leads to the greatest joy of our being, which is to be united with you here on earth and then forever in heaven. We ask for the grace that that joy may be what carries us through our lives and into life eternal. Make this prayer in your powerful name, Jesus our Lord. Amen. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, uh, There's a basic truth of the faith that is often ignored by those who are discerning a vocation. It's ignored by a lot of people, those who reject religion, those who are all in for a particular faith. And the truth is that God did not make you for misery. But I I can't tell you the amount of times that I've been talking to someone who is discerning the will of God, and their base assumption is that it must be completely opposite to what I desire. Because maybe they, in a pursuit of their superficial desires, have stumbled into sin. They've learned to mistrust their desires and assume that if it's something that I like, if it's something that might give me some kind of a pleasure, it must be bad. And so the corollary to that is that God must have made me for misery. (laughs) Or, Or at least we interpret the cross as being, oh, my vocation has to be my embracing of the cross, which means it's gonna be drudgery. But don't worry, after I endure all of the suck, the Lord will give me the prize of a big party. (laughs) And that's not the God that is revealed in Jesus Christ. He said that he has said all these things that we may have joy, so that our our joy may be complete, so that his joy may be in us. And I think that is one of the most important things as we continue on our journey of being formed into the men God wants us to be. It's to go at it from the perspective of God has made me, For himself, which is joy. Communion with him is joy in this life. Eternal communion with him is the joy that we call heaven. Too often, though, we keep on punting joy. (laughs) We kind of kick it to, that'll be something that eventually I'll get to. Right? So someday when I'm a priest, I'm going to be happy. Right now, though, seminary, ugh, I hate it. Eventually, once I'm in seminary, I'm going to be happy, but right now, preparing for it, ugh, it's just torturous. Or, once we're a priest, when I'm a a, a pastor, I'm going to be happy. Right now, as a parochial vicar, ugh, it's just really rough. Or, once you're a pastor, when I get to that other parish that I'm really going to like, then. And we end up choosing misery instead of choosing joy. He made you. Not for misery, not in this life, nor the next, not in your vocation, nor in your preparation for your vocation. Never misery. Yes, challenges. Yes, often suffering, right? Because we live in a, as broken men in a broken world. 
But ultimately, joy is that characteristic um, uh, aspect of Christian life that people should be able to look at us and say, okay, that's someone who, who, who lives in the presence of the living Lord. He made you to know him, to love him, to serve him, and to be happy with him. So to have that resilient Christian joy here on earth, we need to meditate frequently on the joy for which we were created, the joy of heaven. And I don't think we do that very often. I may have shared with you before some crises that I had as a kid because I realized I didn't want to go to heaven, right? I, I, I really didn't want to go to hell because I assumed that was even worse. But every time that I tried to imagine heaven, it sounded awful. Because I, I would just project onto eternity something that I really liked in the moment. So I was a basketball nut, right, as a little kid. And I was like, oh, that's a great basketball game. And we're, we're close, but I'm winning. And all my shots are falling. And it's, it's really great. And that would be torture for all of eternity. And then, of course, I thought of like, okay, what can I think of like the best thing ever? Uh, and you think of every pleasurable thing. You think, ooh, that would be great. That'd be great if it lasted a long time. And eternity would be a little long, right? And any one thing extended eternally becomes hell. And because our minds are not creative enough to grasp heaven, we kind of limit it with our own boring imaginations. And we might look at common depictions, you know, chubby cherubs playing harps or a bunch of saints just kind of looking at Jesus. And our hearts don't yearn for any of that. And so we live through this life neglecting the joy the Lord already has for us in heaven. It's like uh, I love Advent season. Because the Advent season, um, it is already permeated with with the joy of Christmas. And even some of the prefaces and some of the prayers uh, speak to that fact. that The joy of Christmas overflows into that preparatory season. And, And so you realize that even though it's technically a penitential season, there is this this joy that that draws you through it in anticipation of being with the Lord at Christmas. Well, our whole lives are an advent, right? Our our entire lives should be permeated by the joy of heaven already lived here and now, but we will never have that joy until we give ourselves permission to imagine what heaven might be like. So the problem is, we are boring, so our images of heaven are boring, so we seldom imagine heaven And because we seldom imagine it, we don't desire it. Because you can't desire something you can't imagine. You can say the right thing like, oh, I can't wait for heaven. I will like it because it is not this. Uh, But what is it? So it's at this point that we got to turn to our friend Peter Kraft. Who here has ever read anything by him? Who here has ever read everything you ever wanted to know about heaven but never dared to ask? Well, there's your reading assignment for this next year. Because it was one of the 
most influential books for me in my own spiritual life and in my priesthood over the past several years. Because it reminds us of what the goal is. And the most important thing, if you've gotten nothing from these days, get this. Your goal in the seminary is not priesthood. Your goal in the seminary is heaven. The moment that you make priesthood your goal, you end up setting your sights so short that you will either put such an immense pressure on yourself to go through the motions and become a priest because that's what's expected of you, even if maybe God may reveal that's actually not what he's calling you to. Or you romanticize how great your earthly experience of priesthood is going to be. And then when you realize, oh, I'm still a sinner. And the people of God that I love sometimes don't understand me. And I'm not as good at this or that or this other thing. You go into this tailspin and you think, oh, no, I'm in the wrong vocation. I shouldn't have done this. Instead of realizing, like, dude, calm down. Priesthood is the way God forms you into a saint. It's not like on your ordination day, uh, you're, you're fully formed. I'm sorry, no formation program in the world is capable of that. Because that's not the point of a formation program. The point of formation program is to get you to the point of readiness to accept holy orders and then begin the life of the real lifelong formation that's going to occur. And the goal was never that you become a priest. The goal was always that you become a saint. Priesthood is just the path that the Lord has marked out for you in pursuit of heavenly glory. So, Peter Kraft, he has this book about heaven, and he draws very heavily from C.S. Lewis, who um, writes so beautifully of heaven and of purgatory, actually. Some of the, the best writings on purgatory that I've ever read were from a non-Catholic. But let's face it, he was super Catholic. <laughs> so how can we imagine heaven rightly so that we can desire it ardently? Well, you've got to ask the right questions and then find the right answers to those questions. If you read through that book, it will, I think, excite you for the afterlife more than anything else. He also has some talks on YouTube about it. So if you want, you can take a deeper dive later this week or this summer or something like that. To, to whet, This is just to whet your appetite for this. But he presents a compelling case for just the basic questions. Is heaven real? And how do you know? And he says, yes, heaven is real. And I am absolutely convinced of it. Why? Well, first of all, and this is a um, reasoning that we far too seldom give enough credit to. Jesus said so. Far too often we're like, no, 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 I need a different proof. It's like, no, 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 if Jesus was wrong about heaven, then he was wrong about everything, and he was a sham savior, and we're all fools. So if he says something, that already, if he is who he says he is, then everything he says, I'm on board. And he speaks of heaven so beautifully. And then the church is mouthpiece. If she's wrong about heaven, she's wrong about everything. But she speaks to heaven. That those beautiful scriptures that came from the womb of the church, those too speak to heaven. Also, if we go beyond all of that, we realize that the majority, the vast majority 
like in the 90%, like even more than that, the vast majority of people all across the globe, spanning all of the centuries, have believed in some sort of a good afterlife. And you may say, like, well, I mean, they were wrong about all sorts of things, so that's no proof. Well, I'm not saying it's an absolute proof, but you have to be quite the snob to be able to say, oh, yeah, no, no, no. I don't have any actual evidence to the contrary, but I'm going to assume that all of them were wrong. Because I can't actually prove a negative like that. But I, I, I am going to assume all of humanity before me was just naive idiots. And I am going to take, I'm going to drink the despair of modernity and say, um, no, no afterlife. But also the desire of your heart. Right? The fact that the only people that would say they don't desire heaven are those that have some weird counterfeit idea of heaven. But when heaven is rightly explained, every single heart yearns for it. And there are no desires that we have that don't correspond to some kind of a reality. Natural desires, I mean. Those that are embedded and universal in every human heart, there is... None. Like, this would be the first exception to the rule of a natural desire that all human hearts share that does not correspond to a reality. And then finally, the fact that life without hope is impossible. Life without love is sad. It's a tragedy. Life without faith is kind of empty and superficial. Life without hope no, that's impossible. So yes, heaven is real. We have ample reasons to believe it from philosophy and from theology, from uh, reason and revelation. But what is it? Because like, that's ultimately the fact that it's real. It's like, all right, cool. But that doesn't make me yearn for it. I need to look at what it is so that I can be on fire with a yearning for it, and then I can set others on fire with a yearning for it. So the essence of heaven is not pleasure or the absence of pain. The essence of heaven is not some kind of a vague sense of peace or reconciliation with one's life. The essence of heaven is not even a reunion with people that I love. No, the essence of heaven is the presence of God. Heaven is relative to God, not God relative to heaven. Heaven is not some place where God happens to reside, but he might reside elsewhere and then heaven is empty. No, heaven is the presence of God. And because of that, it's not boring. Because God, unlike us, is not boring at all. And it's our participation in God's life. And friends, that's huge. Because it's not just us staring at Jesus. When we hear beatific vision, we think that. And the static images, I mean, I, I can't blame those who wrote the icons or uh, who, who have these beautiful mosaics and apses of churches because they're trying to depict something um, that is beyond us and they're in a medium that is in and of itself static. But it's not us separate from him, looking at him and saying, like, you're so great. I'm still a pile of junk, but you're so great. No, it's us participating in his divine life. 
And it's us eternally exploring the God of the universe. So what is it like? Well, I'm moving from a part of uh, New Mexico that I've been at for the past three and a half years, Clovis. Glorious place. Pray your novenas now that someday you can be pastor of Clovis. It's so good. Um, I was there three and a half years. I didn't realize the second biggest canyon in the U.S. is an hour's drive away in Palo Duro in Texas. It was gorgeous, beautiful, and I thought, how have I wasted so much time? I only went there once. I could have been going there all the time. And then I think, Carlsbad Caverns. Dang it. I've been closer to that place for the past few years, and I haven't gone a single time. And I think, you know what? I'm going to need a whole lifetime just to explore every nook and cranny of beautiful New Mexico. But now I'm about to go to Oregon. And it's like New Mexico on steroids in terms of beauty from what I've been told. I mean, don't worry. I love, I love our state. But what I'm saying there might be even more hiking. And I'm thinking, oh man, I'm going to need a few more lifetimes to explore all of Oregon. But in between here and there, i got Utah, i got Idaho, I've got California. I need to explore all of this. I need to see it all. I need to bask in the glory. But I only have a few measly decades in this earth. That's just the U.S. And so we can think of how wondrous this creation is. But then we, we can see beyond this world and see all of the universe and all of its vastness and say, oh, I want to explore all of that. But then we look at just uh, one cell and we think, look at how intricate that is. I, I want to know that from the inside. In its vastness and in its intricacy, we want to explore all of creation. And that sparks a sense of adventure in us. And that's just the creation. Imagine how much more exciting the creator is. And heaven is not a static looking at him, but is the eternal exploration of the mystery of God, who is more exciting, not less exciting, than all of his creation. It is exploring the universe. It is reading every book. It is uh, being able to gain all of the knowledge and you're still a human, right? So you still learn sequentially. And so it's not like the matrix of like, I know Kung Fu. <laughs> but it is that you still have that joy of attaining knowledge, but without the frustration of realizing that not only are you not getting it, but you'll never get it. Sometimes we have that, this side of eternity, because we think, my time is limited. I can't finish that book. I can't learn this thing. But friends, that's just the surface level of heaven. You know what the real joy of it is? Meeting every person. Knowing their story from the inside. Right? Because sometimes the, one of the pains of this world is that we have friendships that only lasted a little while. We might think of our childhood friendships and think, man, I wonder where he's at now. High school ones that, you know what, they're, we just drifted in different directions we might look at seminary and think, man, these brothers, I wish that I lived closer to them, but I, I'm probably not going to be able to know them as closely as I do right now. And that sadness is met with the incredible, abounding joy of being in perfect communion with every other resident of heaven. No more misunderstanding. Instead, 
I am finally going to be able to know the mystery that is you by being able to look beyond the veil. There will be no more of this frustration of like, oh man, I wish that I could actually be totally known. I, I wish that I could be like really, really loved in my totality. Somebody that can see me as I am, my whole story, the good, the bad, and the ugly. They can know that just as intimately as I've known it and embrace all of it and be able to love me in it. Friends, that's heaven. For every single person, you get to have that internal knowledge of how uniquely they have glorified God through their entire history. Purgatory, I think um, the best description that I've gotten of it is, is in that book, that the pains of purgatory are us looking at the ripple effect of every sin. Us being able to look at all of our story look at the effects we've had negatively on everybody. And see, that causes pain to the heart of a lover to think, oh, I I hurt one that I love. But it's a healing pain because then you're able to see how God was still glorified in every single turn of your life. How every time that you turned back to him, his grace was already there ahead of you. That as bad as the effects of all of your mistakes were, they were nothing compared to the glory of his grace working in all of it. And so the pain of purgatory leads to the joy of heaven because finally and for the first time, you can be perfectly at peace with the man God's made you to be. Heaven is an exciting peace because it's an adventure. But it is an adventure in which we, we no longer can lose Jesus. Right? There, there's going to still be thrills. There's still going to be excitement. But there won't be that shadow of death and sin anymore. So, who will be there? So that's the big part, is we don't know. <laughs> um, we pray and hope for all. Right? Our Lady, what's the prayer that we say at the end of every decade of the Rosary because of Our Lady of Fatima? Lead all souls to heaven, especially those in most need of thy mercy. In that moment, we embrace Our Lady's heart, which beats with love for all of her children, those who know that they're her children and those who don't those who respect their mother's love and those who don't. And she says, I want all of them in heaven. So we hope and pray for all, but we presume upon none. Right? So I don't even presume upon my own salvation. I hope for it, I pray for it, I work toward it. And the joy of even the thought of it is what moves me along through every difficulty, through every twist and turn. It's what gives me hope when despair is knocking at the door because I've fallen into a habitual sin or I just feel like I'm not getting anywhere in my formation or I think that I'm not still, I'm not where I should be at this point. The hope of heaven draws me forward and forward with joy, not just with duty. 
because I'm working toward the goal of becoming that man that God has forever meant me to be. And heaven becomes that thing that is not just in a far-off distant future, but that meets me here and now. When we say that the Mass is heaven on earth, we don't mean that heaven is an eternal church service. Thanks be to God. Right? Because I love the Mass so much. An eternal Mass would be torture. (laughs) Because Mass is a glimpse into God. But God himself touches us at the Mass by giving us a moment of peace with ourselves and with each other. When I confess my sins to all my brothers and sisters, I'm in that purgatorial place of saying, I know I've messed up and it hurts me, but I'm coming to terms with it here. I'm accepting it, embracing it. And then the Lord comes and he says, your sin is not greater than my grace. Let me perfect you in your weakness. And that consoling presence can bring us further and further along on our journey to heaven. But it will only do so if we dream of heaven, if we allow ourselves to imagine it, to yearn for it, and have that excitement that we have spread to those that we love. And so we can start living heaven now. Because you can start living hell now. The moment that you start drinking despair, you're starting to live hell. The moment that you embrace impatience and constant frustration, welcome to hell. It'll continue that way and just uh, have a snowball effect. But the moment that you start living in the presence of God, you, you, you have the foretaste of heaven. Every experience of truth, beauty, goodness, foretaste of heaven. The holy sacrifice of the mass, foretaste of heaven. And so I pray that we can have the joy of heaven already now and that that joy can bring us through every difficulty to those heavenly gates where we may be reunited with all of our loved ones and bask in the presence of an exciting, adventurous God. Let's pray. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift of the hope of heaven. We ask that it may be a joy that carries us through all of the difficulties of our lives. That we may be burning with a desire to be with you as the saints did. That we may enjoy glimpses of that eternal destiny even now. And that these glimpses may be guideposts that keep us on the way that leads to the exciting peace of an eternity with you. I make this prayer in your powerful name, Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen.